Look who showed up over the weekend. It's the News Fairy. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. Not for Jeff Shell. No. Because uh, for those unfamiliar, and I'll admit, I was not familiar with Jeff Shell before this weekend, but he uh, was the CEO of NBC Universal, and he is now out of a job because over the weekend, the company announced he is leaving immediately because he had an inappropriate relationship uh, with a woman at work. And now, parent company Comcast president Mike Cavanaugh is going to take his place for now. And Shell had a big portfolio, which is why we're talking about this. He oversaw the company's theme parks, uh, television news, sports production, and, oh, by the way, Peacock, the streaming service. And as much as anyone, he was a champion of that service. And that's where I want to go with this, Jason, because this is a curveball for the streaming industry that no one really saw coming. Um, Peacock has been trailing its competitors in terms of overall subscribers, that sort of thing. Um, Where do you want to start with this? Well, I mean, I think it's important. You did mention Peacock. I mean, I think that really is probably the the biggest question mark because it is still relatively new. And while Shell succeeded Steve Burke, and Burke is is ultimately he he helped launch Peacock back in in twenty twenty. Really, Peacock has grown and developed under Shell's tenure. So that this happened does put a big question mark on exactly what the future holds for Peacock. Now, I think I think you know the intention is certainly for. Um, Peacock to stay, and and the numbers that they've been able to to report here as as the streaming service has developed have been good. I mean, at least on the user side. Now it is a money loser still, but but if we look at just the most recent performance, now I, I will say Comcast reports earnings on April twenty seventh. But if we go back to the fourth quarter of last year, um, Peacock ended the year with twenty million paying subscribers, which was more than double. Where they started the year, and they added over five million paid subscribers in the fourth quarter alone. And you know, we had talked about Peacock several months back on this show, and sort of the purpose behind it. And, you know, we talk with streaming services like Netflix, and it's always been a focus on subscribers, subscribers, subscribers. Right? They want that paid sub. That's kind of telling you how uh, that, that that's dictating success for the company. And, and with Peacock, it was a bit different. They're really more of a focus on the ad dollars. They want subscribers, um, but they have a number of different tiers. A lot of it is ad-supported, and it's also worth remembering that folks can get Peacock a number of different ways. It's not just subscribe directly to it. It's something that's available free of charge to existing cable and broadband subscribers of Comcast and other cable providers as well. So there are a number of different ways you can get it, which ultimately leads to that focus on the ad dollars that it does bring in. Now, with 20 million paying subs, uh, they clearly have more users than 20 million, but they do feel that they're on the right path here. But the numbers are a bit challenging still. So, if you look at the quarter, right, the end of the quarter, uh, fourth quarter last year, media revenue, the media segment, uh, revenue increased 2.6% to $6 billion. Now, that was driven mainly by Peacock, which nearly doubled its revenue to $660 million for the quarter. For the full year, if you look at Peacock, though, it reported an EBITDA loss. You ready for this? Chris? Two point five billion dollars. Now, 
The good news is that management views 2023 as the ultimate peak year for losses for Peacock. In other words, the investments that they're making in this service, they really feel like they're going to start paying off in 2024 and beyond. Now, that remains to be seen, right? That remains to be seen. But as it stands today, I mean, this is still unfortunately, a money loser for the business, as many streaming services are, right? I mean, it kind of goes back to to really the advantage that Netflix has had in in being really the the first to the space, so to speak. Um, so Peacock's not unique in that it's losing money, but it does bring to question exactly how they want to proceed forward with the, with this because at the end of the day, it really is all about content. And I don't think we've seen, proof yet that Peacock is one of those compelling services that folks feel like they need to have. Complicating matters, or you could argue making matters more interesting, is the fact that NBC Universal has a minority stake of Hulu. Yeah. And among the reports that we've seen about Shell leaving the company is that Comcast CEO Brian Roberts is going to get more involved in the running of this whole process and the decision making. And I think one of the questions that's out there is how badly does Brian Roberts want Peacock? How badly does he want Hulu? Like the future of Hulu and what Disney does and what Comcast decides to do, this is what makes the landscape all the more interesting to me for the next, let's just call it six months or so. Yeah, and I mean, you can say the same thing about Paramount Plus and, and all of these other streaming services. I mean, it is it is very much a, a landscape in chaos right now. And, and, and um, it, it, I think as consumers, we are getting to that point where I don't want to subscribe to any more services, right? I mean, we are getting to the point where it's becoming a little bit difficult to navigate. Um, you're starting to go through and weigh which services are bringing you the most value, kind of kind of cutting out the ones that you you might not um, use on a consistent basis. And so, yeah, I mean, it it still is very much it is still very much up in the air as to how this this space is ultimately going to shape out. I do think that NBC fully intends to hang on to Peacock as its own, though, because again, it it serves multiple purposes. It's very complementary to their to their overall business, uh, given the number of different ways that you can get it. So I think they view it as not only an acquisition tool, but really a nice source of advertising dollars that could probably continue uh, coming forward, especially when you consider the live nature. Of, I mean, they 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 do they do broadcast a lot of sports. I was just going to say when you think about the investment that that Comcast. NBC have made in the rights to the Olympics yeah. through, I believe, 2032. Maybe it's 2036. Uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, I'm sure Peacock and the distribution platform that it offers, and to your point, the advertising dollars that they have probably penciled in for the next, let's just call it, decade or so. Yeah, that's got to factor in. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to find out at the end of 2023 too. Is 2023 really the year of peak losses? Um, because we know things change very quickly, and so this this year may shake out a little bit differently than they intend. Uh, but I think at the end of 2023, it's going to be very important to pay attention to that uh, sort of view on the business, and, and if they start. Pushing that out a little bit, uh, that'll be an indicator that maybe they've bitten off a little bit more than they could chew. Uh, but it, but it does feel like this is this is a very complementary part of their overall business. It's a number of different ways they can bring revenue in. Uh, so so it does appear that they are going to continue investing heavily. It sounds like 2023, the back half of 2023, is going to be a little bit more content heavy. Um, so yeah, we 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 would 
hope to see that subscriber count continue to grow, but but ultimately we'll, we'll focus on the revenue that it's bringing in and, and pay attention to that EBITDA loss because two and a half billion dollars is a lot, and we can assume we can you know, assume it's going to be more here in 2023. But then we need to see that taking a different direction for 2024 and beyond, or or else I'm sure they're going to be having a, some other conversations. The Wall Street Journal is reporting today that Johnson and Johnson is planning to start the roadshow for its consumer healthcare business as early as this week. The spin-off IPO will be later this year for Kenview, the name chosen for the business familiar for consumer products like Tylenol, Band-Aids, and Neutrogena. The goal is to raise $3.5 billion in the IPO, which would put the valuation of Kenview around $40 billion. Back of the envelope math seems like that's pretty achievable. I think so. I mean, if you look at $40 billion for that IPO and look at Johnson & Johnson today, it's a $425 billion market cap. So, you're basically talking about 10% of the size of the overall company today. Now, if you look at the consumer health segment, this past year it represented 15.7% of overall revenue and 12.5% of overall operating profit. So, 10% is actually a little bit of a discount, but you also have to remember that the consumer business comes with some baggage, right? There's still some stuff hanging out there with these talc lawsuits, particularly on the international side. Um, and also, the consumer side of the business is, is portrayed some lackluster growth here over the past several years, right? It's kind of, if you look back to 2013 to today, I mean, the top line is essentially flat. Now, they've been able to bring some, some profitability down to the bottom line, so it's a bit more profitable. But it's not the part of the business that's really lighting the world on fire to begin with. Uh, so it does feel like that $40 billion valuation could be a little bit of a discount because when you look at all of the brand names that they have out there, uh, it's, it's, it's really impressive. I mean, they have what, four $1 billion brands, and then I think another 20 worth $150 million each. So, so it, it has a lot of very popular brands, a lot of money-making brands, uh, but the, there is some baggage that comes with it as well. I think the discount makes sense in part because of, as you said, the lackluster growth that we've seen out of the business over the past decade. Also, the overall environment. I mean, to date, this is the worst year for IPOs since 2009. Yeah. So, I, I think that's part of the discount that we're seeing. But that may also create an environment where there are people just rooting for them to succeed in their IPO because they're looking for more IPOs to do well. Yeah, I bet you there probably will be a warm reception for this because you're getting. I mean, this is an IPO where there's going to be some certainty, right? This is not some business where right. they've, they've got to prove themselves. I right. mean, we, we Band Aid and Avino and all of that stuff that you buy at the drugstore. I mean, this is a very, very well known entity at this point. So, this could be one of those ideas that ultimately plays out very well for folks looking for value because, again, they're not, they, don't, they don't have to prove themselves. I think it's just it comes with a little baggage. You're right about the current environment, but, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see this one warmly received. Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As promised on Sunday's show, we've got more of Nick Seipel's conversation with Doomberg, the anonymous writer on Substack. They discuss Tesla's plans for the future and investing for energy pinch points. So, we've talked some about 
what's happened over the past six months, what, what's happening today. Let's talk a little bit about maybe what's happening going forward. You've written about, uh, there's lots of energy forecasters out there, not least of which Tesla and its latest master plan 3.0 that have predicted uh, that a shift to electric vehicles along uh, uh, with a, a massive build out in solar and wind power and uh, in conjunction with large scale energy storage can uh, allow us to shift away from fossil fuels over the long term. You've written a piece where you said that was mission impossible. Why do you think that is? Uh, there's just not enough green metals around and there's not enough new mines being cited and permitted to come anywhere near those projections. And, um, you know, it, it's fascinating to, to ponder these questions because it's just provably impossible to do. And yet, um, because people like Elon Musk and, and others, to be fair, he's not the only guilty party, um, they sort of do some back of the envelope hand wavy um, uh, calculations and, and describe what is anything that is not impossible is therefore possible. That's the sort of lens through which such um, through such uh, you know, predictions are made. And, and we would say, in the absence of constraints, anything is possible. But those constraints are real, and they must be dealt with. And one of the major constraints, ironically, is violent opposition on the part of the exact same environmentalists who would like to see this electrified future, this, this global utopia. Um, they are the very ones who are the most violently opposed to the permitting and setting of new mines, especially in the Western world. And we, we wrote a piece God, last winter, it was called, I believe it was called Transition to Nowhere, where we talked about this really amazing high quality lithium deposit that was found in Maine in the United States. And unfortunately for the owners of that deposit, it is situated um, 10 miles as the crow flies from a very nice ski resort. <laughs> and Maine has among the most restrictive um, laws preventing the permitting and setting of new mines. That lithium deposit is never going to be developed. And yet I can assure you that if we toured the ski lodge 10 miles away, we would find many, many Teslas plugged in as the relatively wealthy vacationers um, who like to feel like they're making an impact on the planet uh, enjoyed um, some fresh powder uh, and a weekend on the slopes. And so this hypocrisy um, is there. Um, you know, the, the, the recent development uh, that the EPA is making carbon emissions so restrictive that some two thirds of all new cars in the US will be mandated to be electric by the early 2030s. This is literally impossible. It opens up several interesting opportunities from an investment perspective because um, just because it's impossible doesn't mean tens of billions of dollars won't be wasted trying to do it. Um, and so you can sort of model this out from a sort of chaos theory perspective and see where these pinch points will occur and, and position your portfolio accordingly. We are going to spend several hundred billion dollars running an experiment that we know in advance isn't going to work. Um, but that money is still going to flow. The spigots are still going to be turned on and, and much of it will be wasted. Yeah, it's just impossible. Like it, it's, it's really crazy to watch. So like we were in that piece, you referenced Mission Impossible, I believe we need something like 40 times the amount of lithium that we are currently producing in order to achieve some reasonable market penetration. And uh, there's just not, nowhere to be found. It's not happening. You just look at the inventory of existing mines and uh, their decay rates lined up against new mines that are either the known existed permitting or beginning under construction and so on like these things take time they take years they take billions of dollars and and the flow just doesn't add up uh, forget lithium and nickel and copper and cobalt and you know all it takes is one constraint to slow things down dramatically and we have constraints everywhere we look and 
And so, yeah, I mean, we can say it and it makes for happy political talk and um, we could spend billions and billions of the, of the U.S. Treasury's um, taxpayer money um, chasing this dream, but it's literally impossible. And no pronouncements from Elon Musk are going to change the physics. Um, and so, you know, it is what it is. Here's, a, I wish I could remember where I saw this. I read a great article um, where uh, an analyst was saying, hey, why don't we run this experiment? Before we spend all these hundreds of billions of dollars, let's build one small town. And let's have that small town only have access to wind, solar, and batteries. And let's see how the town does, what it costs, and um, what the resulting standard of living would be for that price. Like, why don't we just do a demonstration project? Could a town of 10,000 people? Wouldn't cost that much. And if it doesn't work, at a minimum, we'd learn what doesn't work, and it might make it more likely that all of this money we're spending might be more uh, efficiently done. Um, we need to do that project. And it'll show that there isn't enough batteries in the world to come anywhere near the type of grid reliability that we would need if we're going to mandate that no fossil fuels be used. If we're in the world today, even in Germany, where we have massive deployment of renewables, you see that there's a shadow grid of nuclear and coal reactors that are standing by, ready to take the lead when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and there's not enough battery storage. Um, and that cost is always conveniently ignored. And those carbon emissions are never assigned to the intermittency of the carbon-free, quote-unquote, um, renewable miracle technologies that never seem to work where we try them. Um, and so let's build an entire town where all you're allowed is wind, solar, and batteries. Let's see how many batteries they need, how, how reliable that grid is, and, and how the people who live there feel uh, about uh, getting um, six hours of, of rolling blackouts every day while they try to live their normal lives. So you mentioned ways to position your portfolio. I can hear all my podcast listeners you know, kicking me if I don't ask this question. What are some of those ways that, that you would think about uh, positioning your portfolio, given uh, what you just laid out about the, the gap between projected demand uh, for some of these base metals and the available supply? So I, I should say up front that we you know, don't give investment advice. And so this is all just sort of um, two people chatting. Um, there are several ways that investors can profit from this. One of them is that um, you participate in what you know to be stock promotes. In other words, like if, if you think that um, there's going to be huge investment in this space, there's going to be a lot of hype around it. Um, there are plenty of greater fool's trades that you can participate in as long as you know that the underlying company is actually probably never going to make money um, and, and that you should be prepared to sell once you have a significant enough profit. You know, um, we, we wouldn't participate in such trades because we feel like um, we generally invest privately where there's going to be, you know, um, an assurance of dividends and shareholder remediation from uh, remuneration from uh, from the quality of the underlying business. Um, so that's one way to invest in promotes. And there'll be no shortage of such greater fool's trade in the years ahead. And there will be some um, substantial growth, might not be profitable growth for some of the sort of channel captains in the space. Um, another way, which is a little more attractive to us, is to invest in what we call pinch points, which are sort of critical to completion goods and services that have limited competition, sort of the shovels to gold miners approach um, to these big wind and solar projects. You know, if you're a solar company selling your equity to Wall Street based on growth and you don't care about profitability and you have a very critical part or service or material that you need to finish that project, you'll pay whatever it takes. And such companies can extract a huge share of value in a chain. But remember, this is only as durable as the underlying promote. Um, and so, you know, um, setting up a store to, to sell shovels to gold miners in San Francisco was a great business. 
uh, almost a cheesy sort of business school case today. But once the gold rush ended, um, you know, owning a shovel business in that area wasn't all that lucrative. And so you just, again, have to keep your eye on the ball. Um, you could invest in Contras. Um, so our view is what must happen eventually will happen. And being mindful that eventually can be a very long time. And you could have invested in coal companies at the beginning of the energy crisis, and that would have been a real career maker trade. They're still selling for incredibly cheap um, you know, evaluations. But in this case, you have to focus on dividends and buybacks because the market will be slow to reward you um, on a multiple um, basis. So that would be the three ways we would look to invest, a, a known promote, a pinch point, um, and a contra. Just a couple more uh, questions for you. So you talked about, you know, you look at many of these energy forecasts out there, you can argue more policy documents or aspirational targets than, than kind of genuine, true uh, forecasts in, in some cases. So for an investor who's trying to understand where the energy markets are going, um, how would you advise them to go about analyzing or, or trying to understand, uh, uh, given those, those limitations of, of the research? You know, it's such a chaotic system. And, and what do I mean by chaotic system is it's sensitively dependent on initial conditions and small flows in one area can tip over into others. It's really, really challenging to model, which is great for us because there's no shortage of interesting things to write about. Um, I would say it's probably impossible to get a grip on the entire energy market. And so our advice would be to focus on a region, an area, a company, something you know, like the tech example that we just talked about. And when those opportunities present themselves, um, be prepared uh, to make a well-informed, you know, um, cost-benefit analysis and to manage your risk uh, accordingly. And, and our view is um, truly the riches are in the niches. And, and frankly, when we do our investing, it's almost all private uh, with companies that we know the management of and can po even potentially personally and directly help with the success of that company. Um, that's always been much more successful for us than our ability to sort of pick, especially large stocks, you know. Um, and so I would develop a niche. I would, for example, if I was truly just trading uh, my own uh, portfolio for a living as opposed to writing Doomberg for a living, which is how we spend most of our time. Um, I, I might, for example, just decide I was going to become a, a world expert in coking coal and understand literally where every, you know, um, ship of coking coal was in the world and what the markets were looking and understanding the steel markets. Coking coal is used to make steel. It's, it's not burned to make uh, energy. Uh, I would pick a market as narrow as that and I would uh, become as deep an expert in it as I could, and then invest in the small universe of equities, long and short, depending on our view of the market um, accordingly. And so that's an example of something we would do. I think it's very, very difficult for the individual investor in particular to beat a broad market um, you know, assist, you know, systematically over time, especially if you're managing any reasonable amount of funds. Um, and so either, you know, our whole strategy is we make money in fiat, we save by buying real assets, and we invest privately where we can affect the outcome. That's our broad investor policy statement that works for us. Others, of course, um, have their own approach. And, you know, for example, they might be junior gold miners, and they're going to know every single, you know, prospect and, and management team in the industry, and they're only going to invest in that space. And they can certainly create alpha for themselves uh, in that regard. Um, that, so that would be our advice. If you're going to invest in public equities, um, go narrow, go deep, uh, and understand a small part of the market extremely well. Okay, last question for you. Uh, what is your biggest question about the energy markets over the next six months? The biggest question in the energy markets over the next six months to us are actually twofold. One, what is the true production capacity of OPEC? 
because there is some belief that this cut may have also been motivated by the fact that they were kind of stretched already and couldn't really keep production at these levels. And it was healthy for them to take a step back. You know, where is the true increment of supply going to come for OPEC? Um, and then um, what is the true sort of Chinese demand for oil at year end? There's a lot of talk about, um, you know, global recession or recession in the US or recession in Europe and this somehow being bearish for oil. One wonders whether the grand reopening of China might swamp such sort of bearish flows uh, uh, on the oil demand side of the equation and, and might be swamped by bullish demand for things like jet fuel and so on in China as they continue to reopen. And if, you know, if you gave me a, a shot at a third one is where will, you know, U.S. oil production top out and how fast will the descent be? Um, will the shale producers continue their disciplined approach to uh, renumerating shareholders with cash flow as opposed to growth? Um, those are sort of the big, big questions. And, you know, as the oil market goes, the energy markets go. All right. Well, hopefully we can have you back in, in six months to see where those things played out. Um, until next time, though, Doomberg, can you remind our listeners where they can find your work if they'd like to read more and keep up with what you're doing? Sure. We are predominantly on Substack, both in the form of our um, subscription-based service, which you can find at doomberg.substack.com. Um, we are, thankfully, uh, amazingly, um, the number one finance substack on the platform, which is uh, thrilling and humbling and life-altering all at the same time and truly the work of our lives. So we publish six to eight pieces a month there on the platform, roughly a piece and three quarters a week, you know, roughly every four days or so, every five days. As a subscriber, I know that you, you see our cadence. Um, and then Substack just rolled out a new sort of uh, competitor to Twitter called Notes, uh, which we're also very active on, and it's still in its very early days, but you can find us on Substack Notes as well. And of course, we're still on Twitter at Doomberg T, at the letter T as in Twitter to the end of Doomberg. Um, somebody was squatting on Doomberg. We've since purchased it from them, but we're not going to switch now. It's it's just sort of uh, too far gone to switch, but at least nobody else will grab it and pretend to be us. And so that's where you'll find us predominantly on Substack, also on Substack Notes, and then lastly uh, on Twitter as well. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.